welcome everybody welcome to the show we are going to have a fun conversation taking your questions live i have some that have come in ahead of time today let's see we're at least starting off we're talking about sin can you sin without knowing it can you repent for sins you didn't know you even committed what are the repercussions for unrepentance um does changing your gender fall under bodily autonomy like having plastic surgery or changing your hair color dyeing your hair is gender identity and gender uh, reassignment surgery similar in that case uh what about living with greed and interesting how do we know if we're living with greed versus something else and how do we talk to other people about that and then finally why did god destroy people in the old testament for worshiping other gods and even addressing uh jesus and some commands that he gave to his disciples so so, so those are some of the questions that came in ahead of time that is what we're going to be talking about if you're interested my name is ryan Polly. this is a show where through this question and answer time as well as other videos my goal is to train you and help you understand what christianity teaches to know what you believe defend it well and faithfully live it out in this cultural moment so that is the purpose of my show and if you're interested you can always subscribe and uh, check out the future videos that come out and participate here in the discussion. And as always, I see some questions coming in. Awesome. I will definitely get to those. Um, as always, uh, we are, um, you, there's three ways. If you can see in the description below, three ways that you can join the conversation, ask your questions. One is ahead of time through texting and social media, which is where I've gotten some questions already. And I'll be starting with those. Uh, number two, you can uh, input your question here in the live chat, put a cue or a question beforehand so that I know you're addressing it to me rather than asking someone else in the live chat a question or making a comment. And then lastly, you can always call into the show. I should have that here. Yep, there it is. Uh, you can text your name and your question to 714-989-6927 and you can join me and we can have a little conversation on what you want to talk about. So those are the three ways you can join. And if you're watching this after the fact, you can skip. I'm going to give a quick little announcement, uh, but uh, down below in the description, I will timestamp all the questions that come in and when they are so you can jump specifically to the questions that you are curious to hear my response to. Uh, you don't have to listen to all the things you don't want to listen to. So you can jump ahead to those things that are more interesting or relevant to you. And you can skip this brief little announcement. But I did want to throw it out there. I'd almost never talk about this. But, uh, you know, this is kind of, you know, one of the things I do. And one thing that has been fun doing on YouTube since COVID really happened. And that's kind of when I jumped into this more full time. But for the last few years, really, um, my main thing I did over the summer, right? So I'm a high school teacher. I teach during the school year. Main thing I do normally on my summers is speak, speak at churches, speak at summer camps, speak at schools. And obviously that has really shrunk to almost nothing since COVID happened. And so I just want to throw that out there to everybody that is uh, watching um, that if you are interested I do travel, I do speak on occasion at different events, um, obviously a lot more before than now, but I am open. Uh, my schedule this summer has some spots available. So if you're interested in having me come out to you, your church, your uh, retreat, your youth group, whatever it may be, uh, you can always do that. So you could go to uh, contact or sorry, coffeehousequestions.com or you can email me contact at coffeehousequestions.com and you can send an email, but on the website there, I have a form that you can fill out if you're interested in having me join your group uh, for an event. And there's a also a, a page on the website that has a list of all my topics that I cover. And, and you can also suggest a topic. If I have time to create a new talk, I can do that. But um, those are some options. So if you enjoy uh, what you hear here and you want to add some more to that, um, then, hey, you can always have me out to your group. So we're going to jump right in. And I'm going to try to work through these as quick as I can. Again, like I said, I have a, quite a few questions that came in ahead of time, as well as I see at least uh, some coming in here in the live chat. And um, 
And if you have calls, call in. So with that, let's jump into the first question. The first question came in on Instagram, said, uh, can you sin without knowing it? And then can you repent for unrepentant sins? And so I really thought about this. I think there's two different ways to address this question. So let's pull up our scripture here so we can begin to look at some examples and what the Bible has to say of this idea of sinning without knowing it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are laws about what you see here on the screen, unintentional sin. So for example, in Numbers chapter 15, it says that if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commands that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave the commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it is done unintentionally without knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall suffer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering and pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so we see here kind of an answer to both questions. And we also see a similar uh, command given here in Leviticus. So it's not just in Numbers, but also in Leviticus, where it talks about the laws for sin offerings. And one of the sin offerings that was given was a sin offering for unintentional sins. Now, you could kind of think through and go, well, how does this apply to maybe not knowing, right? Because I think we can unintentionally do something and then after it's done, go, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, right? I think that happens a lot with our sins where it's like, you do something, it's like, oh, that was a bad choice. I should not have done that. And we we, we recognize we did it. But what about maybe like, we're not even aware, right? We, we, we are doing something and we're not even aware that it is possibly sin or could be included in that sin. Maybe that is a slightly different case. And so I think at least for one, we can see here, that there are sins that are not premeditated, that are not done in knowledge of that I know I'm going to do X or I want to do X, I am tempted to do X, and then I do it, there is repentance for that, right? And there is a way in which the Old Testament gives um, sacrifices for those types of sins, as well as what we see here in Leviticus and in Numbers, that there's also a sacrifice for unknown sins or for unintentional sins. Now, I think we can then add on to this when we look at Romans chapter one. And, and there's a few things I think here that are really interesting that Romans chapter one can inform us of. And so the first one is, is at the beginning, kind of in really at verse 18 of Romans chapter one. And so it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all un ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's I think a really important point when we get to this, and then as we then see the kind of the flow of the rest of Romans chapter one and into chapter two, is that there's this suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. You know, I, I do believe that this can happen in two different ways. First of all, we can intentionally, I think, make ourselves unaware uh, by possibly like killing your conscience. There's a way in which, you know, what we see in Romans chapter two, and I guess I can just flip ahead there here really quickly. Uh, we see in Romans chapter two of God's judgment and the law, where it says, people show, the Gentiles show in verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so we have this understanding that through the conscience of, through our conscience being created in the image of God, God, through natural revelation, general revelation, natural law, he has given us the ability at the base level to understand right from wrong. 
And so when you begin lying to your parents, when you begin doing things that are wrong, there is your conscience and the, and the guilt and the knowledge of this was wrong. And I do believe, though, as you continue to do this, if you don't listen to your conscience and you continue and continue and continue, that you can kill your conscience to where then you are kind of sinning unaware, but you're doing it and you're not aware because you've kind of killed your conscience in a sense. I do th believe that that is impossible in some ways. And so when we come back to Romans chapter one, we see that there's this idea of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I don't think that this is always, and this is kind of my second thought here. I don't think this is always a, an obvious thing, right? There are some things that people do and they know that what they're doing is wrong and they do it anyways, right? And there's a clear suppression of, I know that this is inappropriate, I know that this is wrong, or I know that I should know these things and I'm going to suppress it, I'm going to push it away and I'm not going to listen to that conscience. I don't wanna to have to follow that understanding. I think other times though, that this can be suppressed in kind of a more unintentional or without knowing sort of way. And so this last week in my high school class, I got a question that was very interesting and it was a question on generational sin or generational curses. Now, I, I responded to this in a video I did a, a little while back, responding to a, an, a, the ex-Christian apologist uh, giving arguments for why the Bible is not reliable. And one of the objections that she brought up in looking at contradictions in scripture is this idea that in uh, it was uh, in the Old Testament, First one was in Exodus and the second one was, I think, in Deuteronomy. Uh, it says, and I could be wrong, I forgot to pull up the verses here, but it, it gives this example and it says that uh, the father should not be judged for the sins of his child and the child should not be judged for the sins of the father. At the same time, we read in Exodus that it says fathers uh, will be punished and their children to the third and fourth generation will be punished for those who hate God. And so this objection was raised in saying, well, what do we do here? <laughs> The, you have one saying the children will be punished to the third and fourth generation. And another one saying is that the children will not be punished. What are we supposed to do with these two different verses? They seem to be contradictory. And I think the way in which we can deal with this is twofold. Number one, this is bothering me. Sorry. It's weird when I don't have someone else in my ear that I'm listening to. Number one is... Scripture is clear that we are judged eternally and eventually for our personal sins, that I'm not held responsible for, for what my dad did or what my child did necessarily. Uh, I am going to be judged in the end for what I have done. At the same time, we recognize that what we do has an impact on our children. What we teach has an impact on our children. And we're going to get to this in a question coming up because I think this is really important, but we see this understanding of Jesus even saying, you know, the, the, the person who leads these children astray, it is better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. We have this understanding of the responsibilities, teachers, as parents, because of what we teach and do around our children has a massive impact on them. And so I do believe that there is a possibility where because of the sin and maybe rebellion that is maybe more conscious of the parent, for maybe something happens and the parent has this hatred towards God and rebellion against God, it's possible for that parent to then raise a child in a very secular, just non-religious atmosphere to where the child maybe grows up and doesn't have this deep hatred for God. This it, It's not, it, it's almost just this unaware, right? Um, you know, you, it's like, I, I had no idea. I've never learned anything about Christianity. Now, those people are held responsible because we recognize in the words of Jesus 
The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so for someone who is not loving God, they're breaking the greatest commandment. At the same time, if they're growing up in a culture where they're very unaware, where it has not been taught to them, it has not been made clear to them, I think that that person probably has less of a conscious suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. But instead, that suppression maybe has happened a generation or two before, and it's playing out in what they're exposed to and what they are taught. Now, they're still held responsible because they are still in sin. They are still in rebellion against God. And based on general revelation, they still should know better. But I think I'm just trying to draw this distinction. I think that there's a possibility where some know more than others. Some know better than others. It has more been more kind of in front of their face, so to speak. And so when we look at Romans, we understand this. Now, now kind of going back into this, that I think is so important, is that it talks about here that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, what's happening? Well, because God, what can be made known to them is plain. That God has clearly made his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, clearly perceived in the creation of the world and the things that have been made, they're without excuse. But, and then because... Notice the flow of thought with Paul here. Because they are without excuse, because God has made himself clearly known, because there's a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, then God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies and themselves. Right? God talks about the dishonorable passions of going contrary to nature. Notice the, the natural way in which things are supposed to be done. It's built into nature. It's natural, general revelation. You don't need the law to know this. And that's what then goes into in Romans chapter 2, that the Gentiles, even if they don't have the law, they know because the work of the law is written on our hearts. The work of the law is made evident to us. And so I think that in this question of can you sin without knowing, there's a sense in which I would say, yes, you can. Like there are some people that have not been made super aware. Uh, I think, you know, I, I have students that come over from overseas and they've never learned anything about God or religion or anything else. And they're very much unaware that they are in rebellion against God. However, at the same time, um, I talked to a friend of mine who accepted Christ later in life. And I asked him, I said, you know, what was it like? You weren't growing up. You didn't grow up in a Christian home. You weren't taught this stuff. You weren't really exposed to Jesus or Christianity till later in life. Was there something in you that once you became a Christian, that you looked back and you're like, oh, I should have recognized that. I should have known that. But at the time, maybe it just didn't make sense. And he was able to point out some things. There was a time where him and his friend were involved in sinful behavior. And he just felt this overwhelming sense of guilt. And his way of trying to solve it without Christ was, I'm just not going to do that again. Right? That, that was dumb. That was a bad choice. I just shouldn't do that again. And I'm going to try to be better from here on out. And that was his way of trying to solve this guilt that he felt. After becoming a Christian, recognizing why he felt that guilt and what the true solution to that guilt actually is. And he wasn't aware of that, but at the time, it's what Romans 2 is talking about, this sense of guilt. Now, he also mentioned his kind of just awareness or, or understanding of the, that there's got to be more out there. There's got to be a purpose uh, to this universe. There's something more to life and not knowing exactly what that means. And so... I think there's a couple ways to look at that. And I, I don't know if this is helping or making it more confusing, but I do believe that God has clearly made himself known to us so that we can know what's going on. And we then suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, it can be more obvious to some, but I do believe that through the generations, we can deaden ourselves to where we see people that have gone generations without any Christian values. And it can become very 
not as much in the forefront of someone's mind. At the same time, we do see in the Old Testament that there are sins uh, that have been committed uh, that are unintentional. And then once made known, there is forgiveness for that. And so how do you repent for unknown sins? Well, hopefully once you do something, you're aware uh, that you did it and it becomes known. Or two, it's like, God, if, if there's something I messed up on, if there's something I don't understand, there's something I'm doing wrong, please like enlighten me, reveal it to me, help me read in your word what's going on here to help me to live for you. And I'm sorry for these things. And I think that there's a sense that we can do that. And I don't think though that we need to like worry ourselves about it, right? It's not like every day I'm like, oh no, God, I could have done something that I didn't know about. Please forgive me. And I'm constantly worried, right? There's a confidence that we can have in our salvation, in our security in Jesus Christ. And so hopefully that does not turn to an extreme and worry you like that. So uh, I hope that helps. I hope that helps. I see more questions. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jordy, thanks for coming. Kate, thanks for being here. I'll get to those in a little bit. Um, but next one, kind of going along with that. Next question that came in for this. It said, um, what are the repercussions of unrepentance? And what is the scriptural backing for this? And so uh, since Bible verses were asked for, I'm going to give you a lot of Bible verses here. What is the repercussion? for unrepentance. So let's look here. We'll pull up a bunch of stuff. All right, number one, Romans chapter six. Uh, very clearly, uh, very popular known verse, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so very clearly right here from the beginning, what are the repercussions of unrepentance? Those who are unrepentant are in their sin and the wages of sin is death. Death is requi required I don't know why that hard word is so hard to say right now. Death is required for those who are in unrepentance. We also read in Isaiah 59, chapter 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have been hidden, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so that's another repercussion, is this separation from God. That that we are the driving this wedge between us, right? We are designed for relationship with God. And our sins and our unrepentance is dividing that, right? And that's what we see at the very beginning of the Garden of Eden is that was one of the big things is that Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. They communed with God in the garden. And when they sinned, that was one of the punishments is they're cast out of that garden. The, the, the relationship that we have with God has been broken. And that is one of the beauties of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, coming taking on the form of human flesh, entering into relationship with people, and then calling us back into uh, the presence of God through the forgiveness of sins. Through repentance, we can be back in that relationship that is broken and separated here because of our sin and our unrepentance. Galatians 6, 8. Actually, no, jumping back. Galatians 5, 19. Now, the work of the flesh is evident. So when you're not repentant, you're living in the flesh, and here's the work of the flesh. Sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, all of like things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I, it, it can't be any clearer than that, right? This idea that like, we're good people. I can be a good person. I can follow God. No, scripture is clear. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you look at that, like that list includes, I mean, virtually like everybody, jealousy, <laughs> strife. We're going to get to that in, in a question too, because, you know, a comment came in of like, why does this, why, why does the church only talk about some sins like homosexuality or something and, and not other sins like jealousy or greed? 
and yeah, I think that there's ways in which we need to focus on things. Um, I think that because the cultural pressures, there's, there's certain conversations we have more often because those are the questions being asked. But we see here, like when we look at this works of the flesh list, that includes like impurity, sensuality, envy, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Like how many people are angry? That's so way too common. Envy, drunkenness. If you do these things, if there's no forgiveness for your sins, sin equals death, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you have the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and such things are, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with passions and desires. If you have not belonged to Christ, you have not repented of your sins, then you are living in the flesh. And there's the works of the flesh. We also see then one chapter down, Galatians chapter six. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit from the spirit reap eternal life. Clear distinction between the corruption that will happen and those who receive eternal life. Ephesians chapter four, because of the sin, right? It says, now I say this, testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is due them due to their hardness of heart. Just, I love the different ways in which these verses kind of express the same idea in a unique way, right? Um, Galatians, Ephesians pointing out, here we go, darkness of heart. They're alienated from the life of God, right? That is why the consequence of sin is death. You're taken away from the life of God. Last one here, I believe, Acts chapter two. Now, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? If you do not repent, right? There's repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're not repenting, then we see the opposite. They're not getting what the Spirit gives. I mean, the most famous verse in Christianity, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This idea that you will perish without Christ. So I hope that there's a lot of verses there. Uh, and I hope that that um, helps as uh, we try to understand this difficulty, or at least the objection, the questions that we sometimes get from culture of, but really, like, if I don't repent, like, really, how bad is it? Like, what, what, what's coming? Uh, scripture couldn't be clearer. And I hope that this kind of wide range of verses helps us see that. So thank you guys for sending in that question. Um, all right, number three, third question that came in here. Does changing your gender fall under bodily autonomy, like having plastic surgery or dyeing your hair? I have a few comments on this and this, uh, but before I do, and I actually want to pull up the, the longer version of the question, as I tell you this, this came in from a pastor friend of mine. He said, I could say that, uh, this came in from a pastor friend of mine and he wanted me, you know, to maybe encourage like, Hey, pastors have questions and guess what? I have questions too. You know, some of the questions I'll do my best to respond to. Um, I really will. Uh, I may not have perfect answers for these because I, I mean, frankly, I don't know a whole lot or I don't know everything. And there's some areas that I'm stronger in than others. Um, but I, as you have come and ask me questions, I go to other YouTube channels. I go to other scholars and I go to other apologists and I'm asking them questions. And I think that's the whole point is to recognize our own limitations and to be able to say, Hey, I, I don't know this. What am I supposed to do here? And, um, and, and continue learning and continuing in that process of learning. 
but he was uh, this friend of mine, this pastor friend of mine texted and he's a podcast listener. So if you're listening on podcast, what's up? Um, you can keep texting in those questions, contacting on social media. I love answering questions from you guys. But he said, um, I was thinking about someone who advocates for transgender by arguing that changing gender falls under bodily autonomy in the same sense as changing our hair color or maybe plastic surgery. If making other bodily changes isn't wrong, then why is it wrong for changing gender? Um, I think it's a fantastic question. And, and there's, a, there's a couple thoughts that I had here. The first one is, well, I think there's three thoughts. Number one, having plastic surgery, changing parts of your body, changing gender. I don't think that changing uh, or having a surgery that removing certain body parts changes your gender. Your gender is not simply based in your bodily anatomy. In the same way that if you had some tragic car accident where your reproductive organs were cut off or you are born with some sort of bodily deformity where you don't have certain reproductive uh, organs, then you're not like, you didn't like lose your gender. In the same way that if gender being built in into your, your DNA, into much more deep aspects of you, simply having plastic surgery and changing our body parts does not change gender. I think that's the first thing that I would, I would draw as a distinction between these two things. But then secondly, I think that's really important here is I don't give a blanket. I don't believe that we should have a blanket freedom for all things plastic surgery. I, I do my best and it's hard when it gets to some gray areas, but the general principle is true is that I hold to surgeries being done for restorative purposes, not enhancement. Right. So, so I, I wear contacts, right? So my eyes, we recognize what good eyes have because eyes have a purpose. We recognize what a good eye is. And so when your eyes are bad, when you have broken eyes, like I got some bad eyes, um, you go get glasses, you go get contacts. That is for the purpose of restoring your eyesight back to what it should be. Again, recognizing that there's a teleos there, right? There, there's a purpose there of design. What should your eyes be? There's an expectation. That's very different than saying, I got 20-20 vision. I got perfect eyesight. I want you, doctor, to cut my eyes out and give me a robotic eye to give me enhanced superhuman vision. I hope that we would kind of recognize that as something very different and go, well, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not right. In the same way that if I walked in the hospital and I had my arm, uh, you know, removed for whatever reason, a, a war or a car accident or some sort of tragic circumstance made me lose my arm, we then give people bionic arms, robotic arms to, to, to restore a function that they have lost. That is very different than walking into a hospital with a perfectly functioning, healthy, normal arm and saying, doctor, please cut off my arm. I want a robotic arm so I can have more strength, so I can lift heavier things. I think most of us would be able to see that there is an issue here. And if you don't agree, at least that is my position. <laughs> that is what I believe is I don't believe in plastic surgery for enhancement purposes. In for, I, I think it's appropriate and, and good for restorative purposes. That God has blessed us with the gifting of medicine to be, be able to restore us to health and for the things that he has created us for. And so if we're going to argue that because someone can go get X plastic surgery done and, and enhance their body in a way that maybe God does not design them to be, therefore we should allow for gender reassignment surgery, um, I wouldn't agree there. 
I don't think that it is appropriate to remove perfectly functioning body parts just because we don't want them or we prefer to be to have something else. And so that is what uh, surgery for uh, transgender, re you know, gender reassignment surgery does. And, and so I, I don't think that is appropriate. Again, that's different than if someone is born uh, intersex and there are not fully developed reproductive organs and we are trying to restore that to what it should be. That's a different circumstance. And so that would be my second thought here is I don't think it's appropriate uh, to do surgery uh, for that purpose. Thirdly, I don't see gender as being equal to hair color or even body parts. What we see in scripture is gender is, is much more, is much deeper. It, it is ingrained in the biblical narrative where in the very beginning, God creates the male and female. And we see this repeated again in Matthew chapter 19, where in Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus is asked on his view of divorce. And he says, have you not read from the very beginning, he who created them male and female. And this re re-expressing the original creation intent or the original design of creation. We then see in Romans chapter one, this idea of going against the natural function of men and women relationships and what they were designed to be. And ultimately we see this in a beautiful picture of Christ and the church, right? Where Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. And so we see marriage itself as a very gendered institution representing a greater, more transcendent truth. We don't see, and I, I don't see the same with hair color. Now there are some Old Testament and New Testament sayings and, and, and practices that reflect this understanding of how long hair should be or what hair should, uh, you know, how you should cut it and whatnot. But we see that as part of the, the laws of the Old Testament, right? There are ceremonial laws, there are cultural laws, but then we also see these more transcendent laws built in as well. And so I don't see the, the laws and the, the regulations put on hair and dress that we see in the Old and New Testament as being a transcendent built in natural order that goes above, that transcends the culture. These are cultural practices that for whatever reason, because of what certain individuals were doing in that culture, uh, either Paul in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, there are laws warning against such behavior because of matching in with what the people of the pagans, the outside world is doing. And so I don't see the same thing in this understanding of gender. Gender is a transcendent thing that we see in Genesis 1 before there is any culture or, or, or government or population set up. God designed it that way in the beginning. Jesus reaffirms it and is built into a greater truth of Christ and the church, the bride and the bridegroom. And so I just don't see gender as being as, uh, as in, I don't want to say insignificant, but as, yeah, as arbitrary as hair color. Um, and so that, that's, that would be kind of my third thought there. So hopefully that helps in kind of giving a three-part thing of, of what God has designed us for and ultimately uh, how he has built this world to be. Um, I think it is, is different in those senses. All right. Number four, number four, moving along quickly. And uh, Becca, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for sending in that question. And I, I hope it helps. If there's more questions you have, you can always send those in and everybody else. If you are now watching again, um, you can join the show. 
Text in your questions, uh, your name and your question to that phone number there on the screen, 714-989-6927. I'd love to respond to those, uh, hear more from you. I'll get to the questions here in the live chat. But unfortunately, the people who sent them in ahead of time on social media, they beat you guys. Um, but you can do that for next time. All righty, moving along. Um, how can we know if we are living in greed or another inward sin? How can we know for ourselves? How can we talk to other people, know for others, as well as in how can we not live in the sort of legalism that can come from that? I think it's a really good question. And this came up after a conversation uh, in this understanding of how the church kind of addresses different types of sins. It's easy to address sins that are actions, adultery, lying, because they are outward actions that are very clear to see. It is very hard to judge something like greed because greed is a motive, right? That is an inward sin. And so um, to, to, to judge someone's greed is judging their motive. And how can we know their motives unless they have made it known to us? And that's very different. And so I think that in kind of a broad general sense, that's God's job. That's God's department. God looks at the heart, right? We look at the outward. God looks at the heart, right? God looks inside. God looks at the motives. God judge, judges the motives. Uh, he has put us in responsibility to judge actions, right? And so when someone's motives or someone's beliefs and ideas play out in actions, we have laws and we have systems set up to protect innocent and punish guilty. And so we can look at these outward expressions of certain behaviors and we can judge them. And so it's easy for the church to see adultery, to see homosexuality, to see uh, lying in these different behaviors and to be able to speak against those actions. It's much more difficult when it comes to greed. And so we can talk about the, the idea of greed. We can talk about the, the, the sinfulness of greed, but to, to point it out in someone is much more difficult if you see what I'm saying. Now, at the same time, though, I do believe that there is something that we can do. So, for example, if we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. This is something that how do we know for ourselves? This is something that we can reflect on is, are you satisfied? <laughs> the greedy person is always wanting more. You want the nicer house. You want the nicer car. You want the nicer bicycle. You want the better paying job. And it's not wrong to want something that's better paying, but are you satisfied? Can you sit there and say, I am content with what I have, right? That's the, the famous verse that's often taken out of, you know, out of, out of context, Philippians 4, 13, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The, the thing that Paul is talking there in that context is I can do all things. I can be satisfied in much and in little. And in all things, I can be satisfied. I am content in every, in any, in every situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so I think that is the, the evaluation for ourselves is, are you satisfied? with what you have, or are you constantly out wanting more and more and more? That's difficult to see with someone else. It might be possible, but that's definitely something that we can reflect on ourselves. Now, we also look here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I think this is also really important. This kind of addresses the question of uh, how do we not become legalistic about this? And I think in, in, in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I think this verse to me kind of highlights a couple different things. 
Number one, you give what you've decided in your heart and you give cheerfully. To, to have this legalistic expectation, you have to give X percent or else you are greedy or else you are whatever. Um, that is an outside standard that I do not think scripture puts on us. It says you give as you've decided in your heart. For some people, that's going to be more. For some people, that's going to be less. The question is, again, that motive of why are you giving only 1%? Why are you giving so little? Is it because you are, are freaking out? Like, well, if I give away more, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, that's a real fear. And then it's, we need to talk about the trust in God to help us in those times of fear versus condemning someone for being greedy. Maybe there's some greed aspect too. Maybe there's just a fear aspect of if I give, I may not be able to make rent. That's a real thing. I think though on the flip side is a question that often comes up is like people with exuberant wealth, right? Or exorbitant, whatever that word is. I don't even know anymore. Whatever, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> with just tons and tons and tons of money and we go, oh, they must be greedy because, well, I don't know why. There's times where someone has a bad motive and someone has taken advantage of a system and someone has mistreated people to get to a certain place. And that is why they are greedy. But scripture also talks about blessing people who are wise stewards, right? The, the servant who got 10 talents was a good steward of that money and was given 10 more. It was given even the money of the steward who did nothing, the, the servant who did nothing with his money, but bury it in the field. And so there are people that I believe that are smart with their money, that are good stewards of what God has given them and God blesses them with more. But then again, the question is, we can't judge someone as being greedy just because they have more money than us or they because they're super wealthy. And then we also can't put a standard, I think, on them and say, oh, well, if you have a million dollars, you don't need a million dollars to live, right? I mean, most people can live on like a hundred thousand. So you should be giving away 90% of your money, give away 900,000, Live on a hundred thousand because that's what everyone else can live on. You should be fine on that. Like that is not in our position to say that we somehow have to make this standard saying you have to give away X number of dollars and be expected no matter what you make, no matter what your job is to live like everybody else, that we have to donate or tithe to get down to a normal income like anybody else would have. Again, this just says you give as you've decided in your heart. And so the question is, it's a self-reflection question of, What's in your heart? Are you a cheerful giver? Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. I, I believe that's compulsion, right? When you say you have too much money, you have to start giving more because or else we're going to consider you greedy and we're almost going to shame you. I think that's giving under compulsion instead of being a cheerful giver. And so I think when you look at these passages, it can help us be, have this question is, are you satisfied with what you have? And then are you giving cheerfully? Lastly, I think we can look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This goes back to the last question I made of God's never going to leave us. God's not going to forsake us. If we have this love of money that if we detach ourselves, we're going to freak out. Like that's, I think what God speaks into and like, Hey, I got you. And actually that's going to come up in another question that was addressed or asked here at the beginning. And so, um, I think that's what we can look, do to, to not only have kind of check ourselves of living in greed or these kind of inward uh, motives that are sinful desires and motives that we have. But I think also kind of checking ourselves uh, from living in legalism where we have to do X, Y, and Z or else we are whatever. 
and recognizing that we often have all these standards put on us by others and it's maybe not how we need to have it done. Hope that helps. Hope that helps. All right, I am going to jump into the live chat here. And so let me, I think, jump into Kate. Let me see what your question is here really quick. Add to broadcast. All right, there we go. Kate, thank you so much for joining. Hopefully you're still here. Sorry, it took me a little while to get to the question. But your question, um, how do you help a non-believer who is happy and thinks they are a really good person? Understand, A, they need to repent for their sins, and B, they need salvation through Jesus. It's a fantastic question. It's a question that I, I constantly think through as, as I have a lot of conversations with students who are not Christian and are very happy with life. And the first thing that I try to do in my class, specifically, and, and, and in my work, is I try to point out the problems with their worldview. Right? And, and I think of it like this. Um, I have an, a bicycle. I love my bicycle. It's a nice bicycle. And there are bicycles that are way nicer than mine. Cost a lot more money. Now, but why would I go out and buy that when I already have a bicycle? My bicycle is good enough. Right? My, my phone. I have an older iPhone. It's not the brand new one. But it works perfectly fine for what I need. I'm happy with my phone. Why would I need a new phone? And so we do this with cars. We can do the bicycles, whatever it may be. Good salespeople help show you why this new thing has something you need that you don't have or try showing you why what you do have isn't as good as you think it is. The problems with it, right? So you love your car. Yeah, I love my car. But doesn't that break down like every week? Well, not every week. It breaks down, you know, probably once a month. So it leaves you stranded. Yeah. Well, that must not be good, right? Your air conditioning's gone out too, right? Yeah, yeah, no air conditioning. And isn't it going to be summer soon? Yeah, it's going to be summer. And, and there's ways in which we we can start thinking about, look, this is actually some problems. Right? Okay, I got a new phone because this new phone has this new feature and I really need that for what I'm doing. Or this is going to provide a significant improvement. And so there's ways in which we, I think, one, to answer question A, how do we help them see the need when they are happy is we have to show them the futility of life without God, the purposelessness of life without Christ. And so for a lot of people, um, if it's a Mormon, for example, and I always, and if you're worried, curious and you watch the show uh, enough times, I often use Mormonism as an example because I, I've talked with a lot of Mormons and I've, I've gone on trips with Maven to, 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 Utah and to talk with Mormons. And I've studied Mormonism more than most religions. And so that's often a lot of my examples, but secularists as well. But Mormons, hey, I'm happy. This is what it is. And so then I bring up aspects of this impossible gospel within the Mormon doctrines of that, faith, that you are saved by grace after all that you can do. And there's always more that you can do. And so what does it truly mean for Jesus to save you? Or with secularism of I'm happy, I'm good, but where does your mind come from? Where do these different aspects of reality come from? How do you deal with the guilt? It's kind of what we talked about before, but we feel this, this guilt or, or the sense of morality as an atheist, right? We're going to talk about that one in just a moment as we talk about killing people in the Old Testament for worshiping false gods. And the atheist says, that's wrong. The question is why? And I just got done teaching a, a section in my worldview class to juniors and uh, sophomores and juniors on the different worldview approach to law. And we looked at the difference between a secular approach to law and a Christian approach to law. 
that laws are not arbitrary uh, opinions of the majority or those in power. But in a Christian view, laws are grounded on morality and immorality. That when we made slavery illegal, it wasn't just a change of opinion. It wasn't like, hey, you know, we drive on the right side of the road now, but let's start driving on the left. Like we could do that. Uh, we could make changes like at my school, like, hey, there's no uniforms. Now we're going to require you to wear a uniform. There's nothing moral about that. It's just an arbitrary random change for, what, for whatever reason. And the question I asked my students was that kind of is a an example, an illustration showing, I think, a secular view of law, that there is not objective morality guiding laws. Seculars may believe in objective morality, but there's no justification for that objective standard of morality. Ultimately, secular, secularism leads to subjective morality. Right and wrong depends on the person, the perspective, the situation. And so at one point, and you can talk to seculars who will admit this, not all will, but some will, that when slavery was legal, it was good. And when slavery now is illegal, now it's bad. That whatever is legal is good and illegal is bad. And my question is, does that really reflect what you know to be true? Does that really reflect what you know to be true? Or is it a better understanding of what we know is that slavery is actually wrong? There are things that are actually wrong, that we have stripped people of their fundamental rights because God has given them those rights. And so we need to fight against an evil government, incorrect, immoral people that have made certain laws for certain reasons and to try to bring justice to people where there is injustice, not just a difference in opinion. So you say you're happy, but what truly makes you happy? How do you live in this kind of sense? And so trying to find ways to, to find holes in their worldview, holes in their beliefs, to try to help them see, look, how do you explain this? Does this really make sense? And does this satisfy the things that you know to be true? And I think when we do that, then getting on to question B, we then can better show them their need for salvation, right? And, and then, then they're listening. Then they're saying, oh, you know, my car does have problems. Yeah, the air conditioning is out. Yeah, it does break down. Now I'm interested. What can you offer? Right. And there's more of that understanding or at least that willingness to listen. And so it, that's the bad news, right, of the gospel. And sometimes we we miss that. And so we're talking with people who believe that they are happy. Life is going good. They got money. They got friends. Life is good for all, by all worldly standards. And then we're trying to offer this other good thing. And they go, well, I got two good things. Why, why, why should I go there? Why give up what I have to go over here? Especially when over there, it's like, I got to sit in church every week and I got to do things that don't seem like they're as fun. And maybe even give up some things that are fun. And so how do we help them see the need to repent for the sins? By helping them see that they're sinners. You know that you've done wrong. There is a built-in conscious conscience that you have and you feel guilty because you are. And oh, that's what I try to do and try to help them see and reflect. Maybe put it this way. I help them try to reflect on what they already know to be true. God through general revelation, Romans 1 and 2, has revealed himself and revealed a moral code. And so they know these things are right and wrong. And I want to help them reflect on what they know to be true. And then that will then lead them, I believe, to understanding the brokenness and the holes in their views and their need for something better. So Kate, thank you for sending that in. I hope that helps. And uh, wonderful, wonderful question. So now um, back to Instagram questions. Why did God 
command people to destroy those who worshiped false gods in Deuteronomy chapter 13. What we see here and what this person wrote in on Instagram is in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 15. It says, you shall surely put the inhabitants of the city to the sword, 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 devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle and with the edge of the sword. So the question is, why did God do this? Well, God tells us, starting in verse 12, if you hear of one of your cities, which the Lord, your God, now notice your God. So, well, maybe I'll finish reading and then we'll come back to that. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord, your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city saying, let us go serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it. Did I say sword again? Devoting it to destruction. So why did God command people to do this? Well, a couple things here. Number one, Israel, the people who should know better are being talked to by God here which the Lord, your God, is giving you to dwell. So, so God is giving the Israelites a place to dwell in these cities. And now the Israelites, the people who know better, who know the one true God, they are going out and leading the people who are unaware astray. This is, again, like, I think there's a connection here between what Jesus teaches in the New Testament of that those who lead the little ones astray, better it is that you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, right? There's a, a, a deep realization or a deep understanding here that, that when you know better and you now are deceiving other people, you are causing other people to stray from God. How dare you? There's a great punishment for that. Rather than being unaware and being in sin to know better and not only be in sin yourself, but take other people with you. And so that's what we see that's happening here in Deuteronomy chapter 13. And we recognize this is like what the entire northern kingdom of Israel eventually like was, was doing. They were worshiping false gods. They were taking everyone with them. And God eventually brought destruction, not just on the, the outsiders, but on the Israelites as they were taken into captivity and destroyed the southern kingdom a few years later. So God brings destruction. They should know better. Now, why? Well, I think there's a very now simple, short answer. Why would God command for them to be destroyed? Simple. What they're doing is evil. There's a, a blog, has his website, clayjones.net. He has an article titled something to the fact, and I'll, when I find it, I'll put it in the description below uh, for those watching on YouTube. But he has an article titled uh, something to the effect of, we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites because we don't, we don't hate sin. We don't hate sin. Therefore, we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. Right. We, what we recognize here is we don't see a problem. Put it this way. Someone goes out and murders 15 people. Most people are in favor of the death penalty at that point. Most people are in favor of the death penalty. Why? Because we recognize that what the person has done is extremely immoral and deserving of death. If we take that understanding and realize, yeah, there are some things that are really bad then why do we have a problem with God destroying or God calling for the death penalty for those who are worshiping false gods? Because we don't see worshiping false gods as being something that is truly evil. However, when we recognize that the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
And we see a greater punishment for those who know better or should know better and are leading little ones astray. How much more obvious is it to us then when we look at this and go, well, clearly, yeah, the Israelites who should have known better, leading people astray, causing people not to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and in fact, now causing them to follow false gods. Why would we not recognize the severe punishment for this? And so we see sometimes in scripture where the punishment comes out on people much more quickly. Eventually, all people who are following false gods will face God's wrath, whether it's more quickly, they're put to destruction, or whether it's upon their own death and reaching final judgment. But this will come. I think it makes a lot more sense when we look at the holiness of God and the purpose in which we were created and the way in which God truly sees sin, then we understand why this makes sense. And I think that we can do that by looking at other sins that we actually think are egregious and terrible, horrible evils. And we recognize death penalty is at least comparable. <laughs> it's like, well, we shouldn't put you to death, but you should surely spend life in prison because what you did is so bad. Now, I want to also take this opportunity to address very quickly if this is being raised as like an objection from from like a skeptic of like, oh, look how horrible God is. He is killing people just for not worshiping him. If it's raised as an objection, then, it, then another issue has to be addressed. And that is, well, why do you see this as bad? Why is it wrong for God to do this? Because as a, as a skeptic, as we talked about a little bit ago, is that within secularism, if there is no God, there is no objective standard of morality. They say, well, you know, God's just killing people for not worshiping him. Well, why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong to kill people. Says who? Is that just an arbitrary opinion that we've invented? Or is there actually an objective standard of morality? Well, it goes against human flourishing. Well, why is human flourishing good? And you can kind of keep asking these questions. And the point is, is that if, if an objection is being raised against the God of the Old Testament, you have to borrow a standard of morality from the Christian worldview in order to argue that God is an immoral God for killing those in the Old Testament for worshiping false gods. The objection doesn't fall, I mean, the objection does fall flat if we grant a secular view. Now, again, it has to be understood. And how I answered it the first question is the secular objection may be, well, you believe in a good God, and you believe in objective standard of morality, how do you make sense of it? And I hope that I explain that clearly in my response of what they're doing is truly evil. And then you can ask the person, don't you believe that evil should be punished? Like what should happen to a guy that rapes a woman? What, happens, what should happen to someone who abuses children for fun? Do you think they should be punished? Of course. Yeah. Here's punishment. Right? Punishment fitting the crime. We believe in punishment that fits crime. We just don't see worshiping false gods, I think, as, as serious a crime as we should. Do you believe that God, the Bible teaches the divine counsel? If so, what roles does do they play in earthly affairs? Divine counsel, first in scripture, such as Psalms 82.1, God has taken his place in the divine counsel in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. Um, now, I haven't seen, as you mentioned here, the Bible Project compilation on it. So I don't know what the Bible Project has, has done or said on this issue. Um, I will put that on my list to check out that video. But here, I, I don't necessarily think that the um, the gods talked about, the lowercase g gods, is referring to other divine beings necessarily. Um, I think that uh, a way that this has been explained and I think can be understood is um, those who are in power, those who are rulers. Uh, we see many different ways in which those uh, human rulers 
uh, or, or other things can become false gods, right? False God in our life can be many different things. I once had a Jehovah's Witness try to argue with me that, you know, his helmet could be a false God if he worshiped the right, that God. And we see that in the old Testament, you make a, an idol of stone or of metal and you bow down to it. That's a false God. Uh, it's not a real God. That is not a divine being, but it, the scripture does refer to that as God and, or, or not, you know, as gods. And so I, I do believe that this can be understood as God has taken his place among the the gods, so to speak, is of the human rulers, especially those who are in God's covenant people. Um, and so we see this understanding um, in verse two. I'm going on. Well, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and, the, and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Like, it, it seems here as, and is this a Psalm of David? No, a Psalm of Asaph. It seems here this suggestion that God is saying, look, I'm sitting down in the midst of these evil rulers who are not judging justly, who are showing partiality, who are, who are doing these wicked things. How long are you going to keep doing this? You need to judge rightly. You need to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. You need to maintain the rights of the afflicted, the destitute. You need to rescue the weak and the needy. You need to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so uh, that to me is, is my understanding in looking at this um, is this is not in a sense of these are other gods, other divine beings necessarily. But I think the context here um, leads into the belief that um, they're not angelic beings also, um, but they are human rulers or the, the highest in authority in that land who are judging incorrectly. So that would be my understanding that I've looked at this basically. And, and that's how I read this and understand this. Um, I will go to check out that Bible project video and see if they have other comments or other thoughts on this. And maybe, who knows, maybe make another short video or address it in another uh, Q&A coming up in the future. So Georgia, I hope that helps. Uh, Georgia, I, ho I hope that answers the question that you have and at least gives uh, my perspective on, I guess, your first question of, do I believe the Bible teaches a divine counsel? Um, not in the sense that there are other gods beside God that God created um, or angels that are gods, but in the sense that the divine counsel is the, the, the humans who are in charge. And therefore, then to your first question of what role do they play? Well, they are the rulers. They are those in charge and they are those that are making uh, unjust or they're judging unjustly. And so that would be my understanding there based on at least 82 verse one. Hope that helps. So for our last question, it is, we just hit an hour. So this will be the last question. Sorry if you have more, um, but the last question is, did Jesus tell the disciples or why did Jesus tell the disciples to go without uh, provision in Luke, or sorry, Mark chapter six, but then to take provision in Luke chapter 22. So let's look at that here really quick. Mark chapter six, he charged them, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag of money um, for the, or on their belts. And then in Luke, there's another time Jesus sends them out. But notice, I think Jesus answers the question here. So why did Jesus tell him? Well, I think he answers the question here in the Luke passage. When I sent you out with no money or knapsack or sandal, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, knapsack, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. I think that here in the first one, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples a lesson. That the, uh, the, uh, what's the word I just looking for? I blanked. The successfulness 
of their missionary journey is not based on what they have and their skills and the amount of money they have and the things that they have. God or Jesus here, I believe, is teaching them to rely on him. Like you're going to go out and you're not going to take anything. And you are going to see how I provide so that when you come back, you can't be like, oh, we did this and I had all this money. And so I, help, I was able to buy all this food for these people and help them out. It's like, no, I am going to show you how I am your provider, how I am the source of energy and how I am the source of these things and that you are doing all things through my power. However, and then once you realize that, once you realize this is not who you are and that when you have nothing, God still provides, now take with what take with you what you have. It's not that it's wrong to take something with you. It's not like that then has to be the standard, right? It's not the standard of you always have to have nothing and just expect God to provide. There are times when we have nothing and we expect or should trust in Christ. And this goes back to the question about greed that I said I was going to kind of hit from another angle. If you have nothing, and there are times when we have nothing, that we even more so have to rely and trust in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to provide and to take care of us. And then there's times where God provides, where we have that job, where we have a good income, where we have that. And then the question is, what do you do when you have stuff? Are you now going to go, oh, well, now look how amazing I am. I have stuff. It's like, no, you only have stuff because God has provided for you. But how do you continue to be steward? How do you continue to cheerfully give? How do you continue to work in that and continue to do what Christ has called you to do now that you have some? And so I think that's what Jesus's purpose is here and why he told him to do this is he wanted them to realize, look, you just trust in me, rely on me. I will provide. Now that you've learned that lesson, now that you've really relied and trusted on me, now I believe, hey, now take your cloak, take your stuff and and go out and do the stuff. You won't have to rely as heavily on those that are around you. Um, but um, this is what you, you can do. And I think, again, it kind of relates to the ministry of like, there are times where like, I was a missionary at one time and I worked a small job, but I relied a little heavily on support. Now I have a job, so I don't need as much support. I have an income, um, but I'm able to continue doing the ministry now with something. And people still come alongside and help in different ways, but I'm not, oh, I can only do this if you help me sort of thing. It's not a reliance as much on the people that I come into contact with. So um, I think that's why Jesus told them they learned a valuable lesson and uh, they don't have to live in that space always. And in the same way, I don't think we do either. There's times where we have nothing and trust in Christ. There's times where you have a lot trust in Christ. He is the source of life. He is the source of all things. We need to repent from our sins. Without him, there's destruction. We need to trust in the way that he has created us to be our, from our gender to our eyesight to everything that we have and rely on him because without him, we are separated from him. We're not in relationship with him. There is death and destruction apart from him. So he is the source of all things. He's the source of morality. Going to the judging unjustly question as well. I think all these are tied together in some really cool ways. So with that, thank you all for joining me on the last Q&A or the last live stream of the month. As always, it is a Q&A. Uh, we will be having another one again. Let's see, what is the last Friday of May? May 28th. May 28th, 3 p.m. But I also have two interviews, really fun interviews coming up in May, talking about deconversion, people walking away, losing their faith, and also an interview cross-examining Christianity, looking at the truth and goodness of Christianity. So those are two interviews coming up during May. But thank you so much for joining me in April, for being here, for asking the questions. Jo uh, Jordy, uh, oh, look, it looks like you responded. Yep, good. I'm glad you that response helped. Um, Jordy, thank you for being here. Becca, thanks for being here. Kate, 
Adonis, thank you so much. Um, and so I hope that that helped. Hope this is a blessing to you. As always, if you were encouraged and blessed by this, I would love for you guys just to share it. That is the best way for this word to just get around uh, and for more people to hear and to uh, be able to learn and grow from this as we, again, together, hopefully are learning and under growing in our understanding of our faith, knowing how to defend it, and then faithfully living it out. So thank you so much for being here. Subscribe, check out other interviews that are coming up as well as past interviews that you'll see right here and have a blessed and beautiful rest of your day. Guys, keep thinking deeply about Jesus and God because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. Just to follow your love.